Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law. You know, it's funny, this movie doesn't really even have an opening theme, per se. It almost sounds like a cross between the opening of Miami Vice and some random 80s television uh, adventure show. This is Russ, and your real heroes for tonight are... Jen. Jordan. And I think it sounds more like the opening theme music for, like, local news in the late 80s. You know, like, Action 5, you know, Eyewitness News. That's, that's what that music reminded me of. It's just so bizarre. I mean, this movie, as we'll discuss, came out in the late '90s, and and it just that that mu- that music just emoted the '80s for me. I don't know, maybe it was just me. Well, it seemed like it was kind of have trying to have a fun '80s action comedy feel to it in in some ways, and in some ways they succeeded, and others they didn't. But I can see why they would make that musical choice as well. They did have Hasselhoff in the lead role, after all. So like we discussed in the last Real Heroes episode, our inaugural episode on Superman the movie, the Wheel of Fate spoke, and the Wheel of Fate chose Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., the uh, 1998 television movie uh, that was released, I believe, on the Fox Network, I think is where, it, if I'm, if memory serves, that's where it premiered, um, and it was by 20th Century Fox. Yeah, I think it was one of these Fox-produced uh, Marvel properties, much like the Generation X movie about the same time. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they did like these one-offs that thought they would they might catch on as pilots, uh, but they're actually just uh, kind of fairly crappy TV movies. Indeed. You know, the odd thing with when we cover these TV movies is, you know, one of the one of the things that we um, or I had a lot of fun with last time was talking about box office numbers. I know I know Jordan's a fan of the of the box office mojo stuff as well, but talking about budgets and uh, domestic gross, foreign gross. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores, all that good stuff. Some of this TV movie stuff that we're going to do, um, and there's not a lot of it, but there is some of it, um, at least um, on the board. We'll see if the Wheel of Fate uh, dis- decides that for us or not, but it, but there, there is quite a bit on the board. And, uh, you know, we don't really have any of those budget numbers. Um, I've, I tried tracking down budget numbers for Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and couldn't find anything, obviously because it wasn't theatrically released. Uh, there is no no grosses uh, to track, uh, or so to speak of, and um, but we did one of the things I, I will talk about real quick is um, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. There's no official uh, critic rated score for Rotten Tomatoes uh, for Nick Fury: Agent of Shield, but it does have an audience uh, freshness rating or lack thereof of 18 percent, um, and that's based on 650 user ratings. Wow, that's pretty good considering the IMDb is uh, for Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. is 
and that's from uh, 1,500 users. Wow. It's also interesting to note that if you were to try to pick up the DVD these days, on Amazon, it's like $80 for a used copy. It was a, uh, yeah, it, if you were lucky enough to get it, they released it, I think, in 2008. It was released on DVD, and it was a Best Buy exclusive. And it probably only cost like five bucks. And if you just happen to either buy out the stock or find it somewhere, like Jordan said, you can sell that thing on Amazon or eBay for Buku coin, because apparently it went out of print and uh, hasn't seen the light of day since. For many, many, many reasons. Yes. So that's really all we have to say about the numbers side of, of this movie. So we'll get into and do a little casting talk. And uh, I, I guess what we'll do is we'll, we'll just kind of tick down the major cast members and kind of give our, our two cents as, as we come across them uh, before we get into general movie discussion and just kind of uh, um, uh, praise and raise uh, this feature. So starring as Colonel Nicholas Joseph Fury is David the Hoff Hasselhoff, which... From my perspective, I don't think it was really a bad casting choice. I mean, it is a TV movie, so you're not going to get top-line uh, grade-A star. You know, he was coming, you know, Baywatch at this point, I think, was either off the air or, or seriously winding down. So he was still in pretty good shape. I think he looked the part. Um, I was a little disappointed that he didn't have the gray sideburns, you know, the gray, the gray streaks on the side of his hair. But, um, you know, I think that the eye patch came off fine. I think he carried himself well as Nick Fury. And I think he looked, you know, he pulled it off the look he pulled off. I think where where it fell apart with his performance was either a combination of his acting ability or the actual uh, script itself. Um, and, and that may be a toss up as to as to which one was bad or worse. Right. I, I thought both were hit or miss, like about 50 percent of the time. I was like, you know what? That really wasn't a bad Nick Fury line and or delivery, and the other half of the time it just totally missed the mark by, by a wide margin. I couldn't tell um, with this character whether he was trying to be campy at times. It seemed like he was really trying to be campy, and then other times trying to be uh, stone serious. And you know, I just didn't think like he could have it both ways, but that's the way he kind of played it. I think if they're if they're shooting for something campy, you know, then they hit it. You know. <laughs> Because his his performance, I mean, is is he's he chomps a cigar like it's made out of beef jerky, you know. He just has these like one liners that you know would be, you know, uh, probably you know sifted from a screen an old Dolph Lundgren uh, directed DVD screenplay, you know. It just um, uh, it's it's hilarious. I think his his portrayal, but I mean, as far as the physical look or whatever, it, you're right. It really wasn't that far off, but I mean, the portrayal, I mean, is is I don't know. It, almost comedic in some places. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with, with both of your assessments on that. Um, starring as the female lead, uh, the female heroic lead, I, sh- I should say, is Lisa Rinna. And this is kind of like a, I won't say a pre-Botox Lisa Rinna, but it's kind of like a maybe early Botox Lisa Rinna. She doesn't look too bad yet. She doesn't look like she's mutated yet. She wasn't quite in LMD mode yet. The scary right. part about, about Lisa Rinna's character in this movie is that she, no matter what they're doing, whether they're on an op, whether they're on on the the, um, the helicarrier, which you know, we'll talk about also, as far as their design of the helicarrier, pretty hilarious. Um, she's always showing cleavage, always. Um, even when everyone else is wearing a, uh, a giant patent leather uh, jumpsuits that go all the way up to their neck, uh, she's showing off cleavage. So... And has the tightest leather pants known to man. 
<laughs> yes, they are. They they rival ScarJo's pants in Avengers. Uh, in, yeah, in, as far as tightness, I didn't think she was bad in the movie. Uh, I didn't think she was a good Contessa at all. But I didn't think she was a bad actress in the film. Not great either, but just kind of serviceable. Well, at this point, she I think she would only done soap operas. Am I right? Pretty I much. So. I mean, Melrose. Yeah, Melrose Place. She actually was in an episode of Baywatch, which is kind of funny. And then, and then, yeah, I think it was just kind of that TV movie, you know, Lifetime style stuff that that she'd done. But you're right; she still looks pretty good here. She hasn't gone; she hadn't gone to the plastic surgery well one or once or twice too often, uh, like we're used to seeing her now. I mean, I think she looked okay. She was in no way Contessa Valentina uh, Delagro Fontaine, though. In, in oh, no I totally agree. All. But yeah. uh, but she was fine for what she was. And if I may, if we go on to the next cast member, Sandra Hess. Um, if I can channel my inner comic book guy, worst accent ever. Okay, she has the worst. Like I don't know. I thought it was supposed to be German, right? Because she's von Strucker's yeah. kid. But that's like the worst fake German accent I've ever heard in my life. Like <laughs> and, worse and than she's Hogan, European. Worse than Hogan's Heroes, you know? Yeah, it was she's so from bad. It was so bad. Yeah, and and honestly, the accent was bad. She looked good. I mean, they definitely gave her a lot of the right costumes, and she's an attractive woman. Uh, I don't know that the acting... This is, again, one of those ones where the acting wasn't terrible, aside from the accent. It was mostly the dialogue, in her case, for sure. But uh, she definitely looked the part. I just... I I thought her performance across the board was just effing horrible. I mean, I just... I really, really... Yeah, I mean, from the dialogue to her delivery to, to... I don't know. They just totally... I got this character wrong. I mean, th- th- she's th- always wearing evening gowns, like these yeah. evening gowns with giant headdresses. She was definitely all, totally going for the camp, whereas some of the people were trying to straddle that line. She was totally in the camp, uh, the camp arena. So in that aspect, it, it worked for me. It didn't bother me at all, aside from the accent. I, I mean, it's not like the Andrea von Strucker that was in the comics has a very, you know, wide pedigree. I mean, she's she's a, shown up here and there. And I know we're not, you know, one of the things we're not going to do is get into a ton of comic talk, but um, for something like this, it's kind of hard not to compare their counterparts in, in critiquing the performance. And, you know, that character in the in the comics is a little nutty, um, a little extreme and over the edge. But I just I think, yeah, I, I, I can only assume that it's just they were just really going for the campiness. And, you know, maybe she just hit hit the hit the exact mark that uh, that the director had for her. We keep talking about the script. This is a David Goyer script, and you know, for listeners who may not know, I mean, he helped. You know, he wrote Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, uh, the Blade trilogy, a lot of movies that are you know fairly high, highly regarded. He also wrote, you know, Ghost Rider. I mean, he he's written a lot of great stuff and a lot of terrible stuff. He's kind of like the Jeff Loeb of uh, of movie writing. Nice. Yeah, it, I agree, it, and I kind of got that sense with Blade Three. I think. Blade One was, I mean, it had its camp moments, but I think it was very, those moments were very tongue in cheek, and I think they came off well. And maybe it was just because a lot of that was delivered by Wesley Snipes and and um, and Stephen Dorff. But um, you know, in in Blade Two, I think Guillermo del Toro, you know, had his hand in, and then in the third one, he, you know, Goyer not only wrote it but directed it, and I think it just kind of uh, definitely shows the difference you know with with a heavier hand 
uh, on the direction side with the first two as opposed to the third. But uh, but yeah, it's just maybe, you know, it, it made me think that maybe scripting is not his strong suit, that ideas like, you know, almost kind of like a George Lucas thing, right? You know, come up with the ideas and get the, the framework set and let somebody else do the dialogue and handle the direction. And it almost seems like maybe he had too heavy of a hand in the actual script writing for this. Agreed completely. Because even if you look at like the, the Dark Knight movies, all those are story by him, screenplay by, uh, I guess, Jonathan Nolan. So it's definitely an, an ideas versus, you know, the intimate details problem here. And honestly, you know, we don't know the inner workings or what went on, you know, with the development of this. Maybe the studio had a heavy hand, you know, there's no telling and, in what you know direction he was given or or how things might have changed but given that we've seen you know similar things happen with with other properties that that kind of have been sideways it it um it kind of lends itself to to that being the case so and speaking of the ideas versus the the screenplay issue i didn't think the ideas in this movie were bad i think if you were to remake this with better actors better special effects certainly i mean i don't know that you could get much worse and simply just smooth out about 30% of the dialogue, it'd be a decent movie. The ideas are fine. It's the execution and and the intimate details that are just bad. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if you think about it from a structural standpoint, like I said, we'll, we'll get into, I, I guess when we get into the, to the movie, movie itself, that'll, that'll be more apparent. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Jordan, um, that overall it wasn't a bad movie. I think it was a bad execution. So kind of going down the cast list real quick. I mean, the, the three we just mentioned are kind of like the the big ones in the in the show. Uh, Gary Gary Chalk, who played Timothy Aloysius Dugan, which I maybe you guys tell me I'm wrong. I've seen this a couple times now. I don't think they ever called him or referred to him as Dum Dum. No, not not once that I heard. No. And this guy has exactly Stacy Keach's voice. Seriously, if you go back and watch this movie, anytime he talks, close your eyes. His voice is exactly Stacy Keach's voice. Like, if you did a voiceover that Stacy Keach would do, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> and he's a good actor. I mean, he does a lot yeah. of voice acting stuff. I mean, back to Sonic the Hedgehog, and he's even, he was the voice of Optimus Prime in Beast Wars and Beast Machines, which is a good kick for me, because I love those shows uh, growing up, and I have them on DVD, and except for a lot of the first season, it really holds up. Yeah, it yeah. does. I really like that series as well. But I mean, he's on The Killing. He's on. Um, he was in Watchmen. He, he's been in a bunch of really good stuff. And I thought he did a good job in his role. Probably some of the best acting in the movie. I don't know that I buy that character as Dum Dum Dugan. But on the other hand, maybe I kind of do. I don't know. As an older Dum Dum, I think he might just work. He just needs a mustache. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of odd because they kind of went in a weird direction with with the movie where you know Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones and Clay Quartermain and some of those other guys that that were actually in the comics um either had different roles within Shield or were played by older actors um you know that didn't seem like they were on you know most of the time in the in the comics that's you know Fury's team right they're they're always on the front lines they're they're in the middle of the action and these guys were definitely um, not in either. Maybe they were at one point, um, or uh, or just had completely different roles. 
Um, and yet Quartermain is supposed to be, you know, it was like the whole motivation for, you know, uh, Nick to have this revenge uh, uh, trip on, on, you know, the Von Struckers all over again. Um, he He's a young guy. He's not as old as Nick and, and Gabe and the right. rest of them. And he, I mean, the comics, he was always, you know, I always considered him part of that group. But You right. know what this felt like almost in a weird way? You know uh, the movie A Very Brady Christmas where they brought the cast back together, or most of them anyway, and they, they did that story with them all older? This feels almost like there was a S.H.I.E.L.D. television show that none of us remember that was Nick, Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos, and then this is the, the reunion movie. You must have been reading my mind, because I swear, I swear to you, I thought the same thing the other day. I was like, it's exactly what it feels like, a reunion movie for something that never happened before. Which is kind of cool in its own way, you know? Well, it does make sense if you look at it that way from, you know, the way he reacts to everyone with the, oh, we're getting a band back together and that whole aspect of it. You remember that time we entered the singing competition and Nick Fury's voice kept cracking? (laughs) Yeah. You remember when Gabe got his nose broken by a stray softball? Dum 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 dum. It's always dum dum. So one of the, the I guess the last uh, actor I'll, I'll kind of highlight on before we get into it, and then we'll talk a little bit about the director, and then we'll get into the to the movie proper is is Tom McBeath, who played uh, director Jack Pincer. And um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Tom McBeath, he played a character on Stargate SG One called Colonel Harry Mayborn, and it was a character that changed a lot over over the season. And it's funny because his Harry Mayborn started out very much like the pincer character on uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., just a complete douche and, you know, just like douchey, over-the-top douchey, you know, like not not even like just mean-spirited, but just completely irrational. And, and his character of, of Mayborn on, the, on Stargate really came around and became kind of a a welcome guest when he showed up. He he really changed his tune and kind of saw you know what really was going on and had had a nice arc um, from beginning to end. Um, but but in this, he's just so one note and just so you know so much a caricature of you know the the man uh, in in this show that it was just almost laughable. Well, I have to shout out Ron Canada because he was on one of my favorite shows of all time, The West Wing. Uh, he played the Secretary of State. Uh, under uh, Martin Sheen there for, I think it was in the third or fourth season. And uh, he was really good in that. It was weird to see him in, in something like this where, well, if I can cross the inverse polarity of the anti-venom, I might just make it work, you know, like delivering all these like <laughs> pseudo-techno lines. You know, it was kind of weird to see him in this milieu, but he's a solid actor too. And I'm surprised neither of you mentioned that Tracy Waterhouse is in Fringe. True. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and Tom McBeath was in Watchmen as well. <laughs> we brought up Watchmen before. Nice. We always bring up Watchmen. It all comes back it to Watchmen. It comes back to Watchmen. Yeah. yeah, it was weird. All your supporting players in this movie were fairly um I don't I don't know if recognizable is the right word, but they're they're sturdy character actors who did a much better job than the leads. Agreed. Agreed. Well, yeah, they're they're the ones I think they're really trying to play it straight, you know. Especially right. the guys, you know, the guys that played Gabe and Dum Dum in the control center or whatever. You know, they tried to play it as a, you know serious. I think Hasselhoff was like, you know, 
chewing up the scenery as just like he was chewing that cigar. And I swear, if you look at some of the close-ups, that cigar, I think, is made of beef jerky or something. <laughs> so he's, like, chewing on it, and I'm like, if you chewed on a regular, real cigar that way, you would throw up. Okay, yeah, I'm that sorry. would that'd be disgusting. Yeah, so, but I, I'm thinking it's beef jerky or some sort of substitute like that. But they seem to play, you know, very straight. And then you have, you know, Hasselhoff just chewing the scenery like that cigar. And Lisa Renna is like the, the, the window dressing. And then on the opposite side, you know, the villain side, you have, you know, Andrea Von Stucker, the Viper character, again, acting to the rafters, like, you know, Tom Hiddleston said about Loki, you know, just like really over the top and, and as camp as possible. And it's, it's kind of a weird mix. It doesn't quite work either way. You know, I think they should have gone like either all the way goofy camp or all the way serious, you know, rather than this kind of middle ground. I think that's where the movie really fails. Well, one of the ways this movie really fails. Which is is strange because I feel like, and I kind of said this before, if you remade it, it could actually work pretty well. You know, yes, you would have to change the dialogue quite a bit, but tone wise, I didn't think that this tone was that far off from that of the current Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, there were some things that was off. Not everybody was on the same page, which really hurt it. But it would not take that much tweaking in the tone to make this fit into the feel of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. True, true. So lastly, we'll talk a little bit about Rod Hardy, who is the director uh, of this picture. And um, he's he's done quite a bit of work um, in his time. I mean, he's done... December Boys, Buffalo Girls, Robinson Crusoe. Six he episodes did, of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that that's where I was getting at. He did he did a big stint on on BSG and then the X Files too. He directed several episodes of the X Files. Um, a lot of that stuff was obviously after after this. So I don't think you know from a from a pure how it was shot director you know directorial aspect of it i don't think it was bad um i don't think it was as good as some of the other stuff i've seen from him um but again some of that i think is is budget some of it is script uh could have been time constraints i mean you know who knows you know what the specifics are you know it could have been he was just kind of hired to come in and shoot the script and and you know do this job and and that's what it is but i definitely think when you look at his breadth of work this is definitely kind of a low point, I think. I think he's, you know, a lot of the stuff he's done has been more polished um, and and definitely shows off his craft better than, than this movie does. Definitely. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head when you, when you mentioned that one of the big problems here was budget. I mean, those CGI effects looked horribly dated when they came out, <laughs> you know, even for late 90s. And they look, you know, much, much worse now. I think the production design, I mean, look at the design of the helicarrier, for God's sakes. They just took an aircraft carrier and put it, like, on an industrial bench. Yeah. It didn't even yeah. feel like an aircraft carrier. It felt more like a battleship. Yeah. It looked like a battleship model welded to an industrial bench. I yeah. mean, it just, looked, it, it just looked like, I don't know, it was it was laughable. I mean, I, I, I don't know. This, I think I feel this movie fails in a lot of ways. I mean, it's competently directed with the budget that they had and the production they were able to do. I wish every, you know, hideout of supervillains was not a Tesla coil factory, though. <laughs> I didn't even know they still had Tesla coil yeah. factories, but evidently they do. <laughs> Mostly in Europe. Yeah, it felt a little bit like uh, Mr. Freeze's base or any any of the of the old Batman movie bases, kind of, you know, that kind of feel. Yeah. Big wide open I, spaces in a warehouse, Tesla coils, bright colors. Yeah, and I think that just, again, gets back to budget, you know, just... Let's let's 
throw tech in as cheaply as we possibly could. I loved at the very beginning of the movie where they come to to tell Fury that he's been re- reconscripted, and he's like he's for some reason he, he's working a pickaxe on concrete, yeah. on like a concrete wall. I'm just like. Why is he mining concrete? That does, I don't even understand what what's going on here, you know? Well, if you'd seen the original series, you would know that's where he hit all of his nukes. Behind the concrete oh, wall. Oh, right. Yeah, see, you, you gotta come in with some your prior yeah. knowledge. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. All right, so I guess let's get into the uh, to we'll we'll talk about the movie itself. So I'm I'm going to start with one thing I think that that was kind of cool when they did, and I think they kind of got right. So let me I'll, I'll play a little clip here. Welcome to Shield, the Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. I thought that was kind of cool. You know, they the they started off. I was like, acronym, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, except that they chose a really dumb acronym for it. Uh, it's not the one I'm familiar with, and I'm familiar with several. And the, the Supreme Headquarters thing just always rang goofy to me. Yeah, that I mean, it's definitely a very you know '60s '70s era kind of ex, you know uh, uh, pronunciation of of that acronym. Um, and it was changed actually in 1991 in the comics to Strategic Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate. Um, which I think just kind of tightened it up a little bit, and then of course in the in the movie universe, it's uh, Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. So um, you know, definitely, which I think is probably the best one so far. That yeah. sounds like it could be actually real. Yeah, and it and it definitely fits. You know, kind of the post nine eleven you know government structuring. You know, with the whole you know homeland intervention you know co- you know piece to it. But uh, but th- this was again they changed it in the comics in ninety one. But you know, for a long long time, this this was what they they referred to Shield as. So I just I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool to actually hear it. You know, as as they kind of went on the the helicarrier there. I thought that was that was kind of cool. There's also a nice uh, shout out to uh, Shield Curry Academy. Yes, yes. Say, uh, I just got back. You know, I graduated that annoying British uh, suck up guy um, <laughs> in the movie. Uh, you know, I, I graduated top of my class at Kirby Academy. I thought that was a nice little Easter egg as well. From Alexander Goodwin Pierce. Yeah, and I think uh, that's definitely the uh, influence of Goyer. I mean, that's you know that that kind of attention to detail. Um, you know, the shield, uh, acronym, you know, being, you know, explained out is, is definitely, you know, where Goyer's, uh, you know, geeky touch kind of, kind of played it, played its part. But, but it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, Jim, like you said, you know, it's the movie starts out where we find, you know, Nick just randomly tunneling out, uh, with a jackhammer for some reason. Um, and, and like you said, we, we don't have any idea. It, it, and again, Jordan, I mean, you just hit it the nail on the head it's it's one of the things i think is a detriment to this movie is and and i think this could be a curse and a blessing there's times when um in a movie they'll go into too much exposition too much explaining too much character development too much background um but in this one it's almost as if you would have to know who nick fury is who shield is who these characters are what their backgrounds are and what's going on to really kind of get what what's going on i mean they kind of give that brief explanation that we know nick used to be in, a member of shield as, as soon as the you know kind of the the berlin wall went down and and you know the ussr fell 
that the Cold War was kind of over and Nick Fury was kind of like a man out of you know time. He he just didn't fit in, in the in this world anymore. If I may, Russ, the way they put it in the, the movie is, uh, Nick himself puts it, uh, when the Iron Curtain went to the big laundry, I got hung out to dry. <laughs> Indeed. Which is kind of funny. You know, that's one of the things, like we talked about, the dialogue is just, you know, at times kind of gut-wrenchingly bad. Um, I, I've got a few clips I'll string together uh, that that we could talk about uh, this one from early on in the movie, basically when when Shield comes to uh, recruit Nick back into the fold, and um, when when Nick turns around and sees that uh, the Contessa has come after him, um, I love the response he gives to her. Contessa Valentino de Allegra Fontaine, quite a mouthful when you try and wrap your tongue around it. Don't let the blue blood fool you, Pierce. Val's an old hand at the sexpionage game, aren't you? That kind of set the tone right there. <laughs> it almost sounded like you said sexpionage. He did. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, at least, exactly. at least according to the IMDb quote page. Yeah, no, that definitely is what is what he said, which I thought was really funny, and it it kind of fits her character from the comics. You know, the oh, Contessa yeah. is is very um, always drawn with either. In her shield garb, a lot of times, you know, she, she's she's a lot more covert. So she's drawn with like these very low back dresses or very plunging necklines. You know, she always kind of has one of those. Um, what do you call it with this? When you have a cigarette in the in the holder, you know, the the. I don't right. know if there's a technical cigarette holder. <laughs> yeah, cigarette. I, holder. I didn't know if there's a. Yeah, if there's a technical term for that. You know, very high society, I guess. You know, the big, you know, her. she always had the big hair that was kind of, you know, done up. And I think Lisa Rinna in this movie has, like, the worst hair ever. Like, just just the most bland, drab hairstyle um, ever. She looks like a Pekingese. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. They cut Pekingese hairs like, uh, hair like that. These days, uh, Contessa is like Madame Hydra, isn't she? I forget exactly no. where her character ended up in uh, Secret in uh, Secret Warriors, but she was involved with Hydra. I haven't read a ton of of um, of, Sh- of Shield stuff, but I one of my favorite Shield stories or Nick Fury stories is Nick Fury versus Shield, and uh, she plays a big part in that. Uh, which she's is a, in which Secret is... Warriors too. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, which which I have the omnibus on my shelf and have not read it yet. It's really good. You should get around it to really it. It really is. <laughs> yeah. But we're not here to talk about comics. I believe she was uh she was introduced during the Steranko run. Am I am I wrong about that? No, I, I think, think you're I, absolutely right. I yeah. Think, I think yeah. She, her character was created during the Jim Steranko uh Strange Tales uh you know, Nick Fury Agent of Shield run, uh, you know, legendary, you know, work with Jim Steranko. Um and, and like you say, Rush, she's very much like the, the dragon lady, very much uh Matahari using her sensuality as uh, part of her arsenal. Which, that was one of the things I was actually really impressed at in the movie was, and again, this goes back to that it feels like a reunion thing, it feels like a lot of things. They did do a lot of stuff they didn't really have to do for the story in terms of, hey, Gabe Jones is here, hey, we've got the Von Struckers, we've got Arne Zola, we've got the Contessa of all people, we've got... Um, all these characters and all these references to at least things in the S.H.I.E.L.D. universe. Not They don't mention any of the superheroes or anything outside of that, but they really did pack in a ton of references for fans of the comics and fans of Nick Fury. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the scene, the movie opens with a scene, you know, in a in a shield bunker, or, you know, under, you know, deep within shield, where, you know, you you pass by and there's this, uh, you know, tube or whatever, and it says, you know, Baron Wolfgang von Strucker, and you get that right at the beginning, and I was like. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, they're, they're, they're going there. This is not going to be generic bad guy. This is not going to be like the Spider-Man TV show from the 70s where he didn't fight any real villains or even the Incredible Hulk, um, you know, TV show where there wasn't any of the actual comic aspects to it. Um, so I, it was kind of cool right away that they set that tone where, um, you know, they were bringing those references in and it was going to be that, you know, in that style. I love uh, how they introduce the theme as he's getting onto the shield helicarrier of him shooting machines to make them work. Because he's the Fonz. Exactly. Or or shooting them to make them not work. Right. (laughs) Well, if you shoot them slightly to the left, they work, but slightly to the right, they don't. This This is old tech stuff. You should know this, Russ. It's just funny. He shoots things to make them work. He smokes everywhere. There's a no smoking sign. They always like. I remember like there are at least three or four different shots where he's he's lighting his cigar and there's a no smoking sign behind him. Yeah. It's the nineties, man. It was a different time. I guess to 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 spur a more dialogue conversation, I'm a, I'm going to play a couple um, what I what I consider uh, Nick Fury's greatest hits uh, clips. Um, so we'll go through a couple and and have a uh, probably have a few good chuckles and and some some stuff to to say. Still cares about you, sir. You don't have to be an ESP agent to see that. Yeah, well, I got eight million other lives to worry about right now. Running a little low on Hallmark moments. You forgot one. Attempted grievous bodily harm. (laughs) How was that? For diminished motor coordination. I did not intend to spend the last few hours of my life on this planet in the helicarrier sickbay. I'll get that vampire's blood if I have to suck it from her neck. You know he's even uglier than I remember. Your frozen pop sickle. Get it, Andrea? Pop sickle? Nick, thank God. I thought you were dead. I was. But now I'm better. <laughs> I like, I love, well, first of all, I love the way how he has to, he feels the need to explain that joke to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pop, like, it's not, it's bad enough he says it, but he's like, no, pop sickle. Get it? Get it? Because he's your dad, get it, you know, and then and and the other thing I wanted to mention real quick before I forget that that psychic agent, like that she delivers that same line like three or four times in this, in this movie. She she keeps saying, "Well, I don't have to have ESP to figure that out." <laughs> <laughs> it's funny th- those clips you just played, Russ, are actually a great little cross section of uh, his performance as Nick Fury in the movie, where or I shouldn't even say that to the writing. Because you can see, like, the first two of those, they sound like Nick Fury lines. Those sound like something he would say, and they were delivered fairly well. And then the, the third one is where you go, oh, okay, that, oh, no, that doesn't work anymore. And then the fourth one is just terrible. But yeah. he, they do have that weird hit or miss where those first two, I'm like, that is Nick Fury. And the other two, that is just terrible. I was just going to say some of, some of the other lines I, I have in my notes here. Are, you know, Hydra has been jerking us eight ways from Sunday. And um, the, they asked him, um, I remember there's the pointing moment where, you know, he talks about the Iron Curtain being how, you know, uh, he got hung out to dry. And then uh, the agent says, because they changed the rules, sir. And he says, for me, there were no rules. I'm a rebel, daddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it made me think of. 
Yeah, it's just it's really funny. I think some of this is just the the whole on a comic book page in a comic book this stuff sounds a little different than in the movie. You know, it's kind of like spandex on the big screen. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it just doesn't. Right. One of the things about Nick Fury, at least in my opinion, is that he works best when he's written sparsely. When, you know, you go several pages of other people talking and then he comes in with that, you know, line or two that gets everybody to shut up, is kind of badass, and just moves the plot along. Whereas here, he's talking constantly. So, yeah, you have the ones that work, but then half the other times you're like, you didn't need to say anything there. The bad line came in, not just because it was a bad line, but because there didn't need to be a line, period. You just needed to look rough. Yeah, yeah. And the the villains in this whole movie are just incredibly laughable as well. I mean, as as silly as the, I mean, you, you have Hasselhoff, like like you say, Jordan delivering some lines that would be pitch perfect as Nick Fury, and then others that just seem comical. Then you have the villains. You have um, you know, you have like uh, you know Andrew von Strucker, you know, strutting around in her evening gown, and then her brother, who is like has Bluetooth and like a weird hair weave, and then a whole army of bald guys with sunglasses. Yeah, what was that about? That was like I don't the, know. The, the observers from <laughs> from Fringe were yeah. hanging out, you know, after they'd well, been out of the sun for a few months. Like I did not understand what that was supposed to be. It's so funny because there were times when the Shield Science Division, you'd see those guys in those suits. They almost kind of looked like Hydra suits or AIM suits, you know, which which obviously you're talking Hydra AIM, you know, very very similar. And the uh, the bad guys almost look, you know, they all had suits on, but but again, yeah, they had that kind of featureless look that they never explained, never referenced, and nobody seemed to be bothered by it. It was just really, really bizarre. And the the the, the kid, the her brother with the weird hair, and the, he kept it. It just it made me think of a Hollywood agent. You know how they always portray the Hollywood agents as always having an earphone in their ear and and and. Um, yeah. You know, a, a, a mouthpiece. Um, that's the way he, he came up to me. I'm just like, oh, killer Hollywood agent. Great, you know. And their plan was to shoot missiles at uh, at, at New York. I just, I don't know. It's just, it, the, the, villain, the, the threat wasn't credible, so it just made me think they were trying to go for, for, for comedy, you know, over-the-top kind of camp stuff. They might as well have had, like, you know, Wham! and Bam! and Kapow! Uh, sewn in there as far as some of the scenes like where he slides across the table there at the end that yeah. was hilarious and then to see like everybody in shield dressed up in these head-to-toe patent leather jumpsuits you know trying to run around and do house when i could just it just makes me think of that uh saturday night live sketch with jimmy fallon where he's running the leather store and every every step he takes is just all the squeaking noise. I can just imagine <laughs> them like editing that out in post because that had to be what it was going on with these shiny leather, you know, jumpsuits that they're wearing. It's just hilarious. And they're all carrying like fifty pounds of gear. It looks like they're going camping, not like they're going to go attack somebody. Well, they had to bring the LMD. I mean, that they set oh, up in the Lord. first act. Yeah, they, the they set it up act. in the first act. They set it up in the second act. Right, and then you know, just so just in case you didn't get it. Like, it would have worked if they revealed that the one who's been going around the whole time was an LMD, so he wasn't sick at all. But, I mean, it, it was just so set up that by the point they're like, nope, it was an LMD just for these last five minutes. You're like, all right, I knew that, so get on with it. It was a pretty cool animatronic that they did. 
it's like that's where all the budget went is is to that animatronic they did in the in the very beginning of uh where they didn't the need Nick to Fury do one LMP. because it's supposed to look just like him and later on in right. the movie it did so all you need to do is cg out his bottom half and have him stand up there next to himself on a split screen right in 1998 probably not quite as cheap as uh as in you know 2010 2012 well they they could do it on uh they could do it on every sitcom ever where you're, you know, do your cousin comes in. You, you do know. a key in a mirror. Or, yeah. or you just shoot the scene twice and keep the camera in the same spot. Have them stand on one side in the beginning and have them stand on the other side in the end. I mean, they did it on, you know, Full House, for gosh sakes, in, you know, the mid-90s. They could do it on this. Part of it was to show off the fact that it was just the upper half, right? I mean, the lower half was exposed as as a robot, so... So you have him stand in a table with a with a hole cut in the center and have him just sit out on the bottom. Why are you defending these crappy effects? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying they could have done it cheaper and better and not have a dumb animatronic that, yes, looked like an impressive animatronic, but it ruined the effect for later on in the movie. I'm asking Russ. I'm asking why he's trying to back up these effects oh, oh. <laughs> that were not very good. <laughs> that Somebody has seen. to. Uh, I guess. <laughs> Sure, anybody really does have to. <laughs> I love the, I love the scene where she tried to read. She was reading Arnim Zola's mind, and it looked like he was taking a dump and she was having an O. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, it was hilarious because he just like, oh, it just looked like he, oh, the fibers finally moved through Grandpa. <laughs> and I look at her face, and she just look, it looks well, you know, the O face. Then I have the 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 complete and utter. WTF moment of the whole like this is the dialogue that when it happened I was like what the hell just happened like what was the point of that and that's I'll, I'll set the clip up we have the the shield group led by fury shows up to meet with what they think is um, a British agent that's that's going to give them some information who I thought was Von Strucker from the beginning because she looks just like her yeah, yeah. I mean that that was. I the, was going to mention part. that. Why didn't they have an actress who looked a little less like her? Yeah, I yeah. was very confused. Like, why are they meeting with the villain all of a sudden? And how could he not recognize her? Yeah, I mean it was dark at night, so it was kind of hard to tell. But they did the typical. I'm going to throw you a code word, and you're going to respond with the correct code word, and then we'll know that we're friends, and you know you weren't, you're not my enemy, or or somebody posing as somebody else because I've never met you before. So they, they go through and do that exchange, and then and then this little gem uh, shows up. Beauty is truth, and truth is beauty. That's all ye on this earth know, and all ye need to know. Is that part of the recognition code? No. I just felt like saying it. <laughs> it's like, what? I, was, I literally sat in my chair and was like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> pretty sure that's byron yeah it just it just seems so bizarre like why would you like like why i like i just i totally didn't i don't know i think somebody just thought that was really clever because um, i just wanted to say it yeah yeah it's just i don't know it just cracked me up i was like oh my god so are we gonna mention at any point the fact that he uh keeps a grenade behind his eye patch he keeps he keeps an exploding fake eye sewn into his skull like he doesn't even need to be an eye because his eye socket is sewn shut behind his eye patch as well as an electronic lockpick whatever that is in 1998 yeah i i was i almost kind of treat nick fury's eye patch as like 
Judge Dredd's helmet, it should just never come off and never be messed with uh, at all. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things, right? It's just, it's just part of the character and part of who he is, and it's just that's just the way it is. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird too. I've never, I don't remember that ever coming up in the comics. That's because it's too dumb even for comics. The other thing to note too with this movie is it's almost an hour into it before we, and now granted without commercials, this is a 90 minute affair. We're almost an hour in before there's any real action to it. I mean, you know, it starts where they, they recruit Nick, they bring him back to, you know, we get that little bit of action sequence in the very beginning when they, when they come and break Von Strucker out, but it's not really. When the shield agent yells out, let us rock and let us roll, which is probably my favorite. (laughs) What? Line wow. Yeah, like I think they spend like I don't know, a good forty-five minutes, and it's nothing but Nick Fury going to work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like the first ten minutes is you know the Yukon, Alaska, and they this great like uh, helicopter shot, and they just keep zooming and zooming in to finally they, there's Nick Fury, and then they come to recruit him back, and then the rest of you know the next forty-five minutes is him walking, or getting to work. You know, they show him in the car- in the helicopter. They show him in the elevator. He's constantly walking down a bunch of hallways. Finally, he gets to the helicarrier, like, you're an hour into the damn movie. Like, it's oh. the opening to get smart. Just, yeah. you know, expanding really? yeah. the full length. Right, hour. or Touch of Evil, you know, by Orson Welles. Was it me, or did it seem like every shot they they showed of the... I, I, I can't, I don't know, Quinjet or the, 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 the Shield Jet or whatever you want to call it, Fighter Jet... It, it seemed like the it was like you know almost watching Battlestar Galactica like the old series like it was the same shot that maybe they just did like a reverse or flipped it around or something like that it just seemed like they just kept reusing the same shot over and over again yeah yeah the helicarrier is the same deal it was the same shot I think reversed a couple times that thing had to be like ridiculously huge because if you it, it looked like you know kind of like we mentioned before like you took a uh, like a like a either an aircraft carrier or a you know a battleship, and then stuck it on this base that had these four extended out um, solid shooters. Uh, you know, yeah, 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 solid you know, shooters. <laughs> yeah, the thing had to be just like ridiculously huge. I mean, and and especially, I guess it kind of hits home a little more because we just kind of saw a mostly brilliant execution of this in the Avengers movie. So um, that's obviously tainting my perception of of what this was i like the uh the fake version of pincer with the holographic projector on his neck yeah yeah who then explodes I'm like oh total recall i remember that <laughs> yeah it was almost like a paint by numbers kind of thing right i mean the whole oh missiles aimed at new york oh they've got to stop it it comes down to the very last second you know they got to disarm it and get the codes and you know, it just, it was just, it was very, to me, very formulaic. And they keep making a big deal about how, even if she gets the money, she's going to fire the missiles. So if that's the case, why is there a disarm code to begin with? Yeah, exactly. You know, if she's going to yeah. fire the missiles anyway, no matter what they do, why would there, why would there be, a, why would she need a disarm code? She wouldn't. And it's, it's funny, as much as Jordan mentioned that this seemed like a, a movie that felt like a, a reunion movie that of a TV show that just never ha- happened and never happened before. It, it almost felt like, and I can't remember at the time if this is true, and I th- I want to say it is, much like the Generation X TV movie, that this was kind of like, I hate to say backdoor pilot, because that's, you know, that concept is more when they take an existing show and 
bring in a whole new cast, you know, that's tangentially related to the main show to see if it if it if it grips with people and to to make it the show out of it. But it almost seemed like, okay, if this does well, it's well received, the ratings are good, that they'd go ahead and make this into a regular TV series. And I don't think the ratings were that good. Uh, you know, it, it premiered, uh, you know, I guess it went in May. So it was kind of like, you know, towards the end of, yeah, May 26th. So, you know, again, after most of the main TV shows have had their season finales and, you know, the big summer movie season was starting and everything else. So it was kind of in a bad, a bad time to begin with, but it just had the feel of they were setting it up, especially the way it ended, right? I mean, at the, at the end, you know, we find that, you know, the Baron has escaped and, and as well as, uh, as Andrea von Strucker, that the two of them have escaped, um, and they're you know kind of off to set another plot in motion or regroup themselves and 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 strike back. But alas, it was not meant to be. It was not. No, Hasselhoff's next role that we know of was laying on the floor eating a cheeseburger. <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen! I I wouldn't go so far as to call him mighty, but hey, in Germany, eight. he's mighty. <laughs> Which is funny, he's fighting German villains And yeah, that's true, he's the guy who's bigger in Germany He stood upon the Berlin Wall when they knocked it down and sang With a light-up jacket Like a jacket with like old-school 80s LEDs sewn into it <laughs> yep, yep. So It's a beautiful thing, you should look it up on YouTube I love the, um, also really liked uh, Viper's little uh, control area Where she had all the different people on TV And then underneath them had like where they were calling from <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like weird, like that diner, the, that diner scrolling sign that you can buy at Walmart or whatever, like China, <laughs> and it said stuff like you know what country they're from. It didn't say like specific cities. And it was funny because you had like I think there was probably four or five of them, and so three or four of those four or five were close ups, and you could tell they were scre- they were video screens. And then there's the one that looks almost like it's an old painting, and I thought that's what it was. Like <laughs> until all of a sudden he starts talking at some point because he's more it's more of a two shot or something with him in it, and all of a sudden he starts talking. And I was like, oh, that's actually a guy there. Okay, I, I was not catching that at first. <laughs> so now that we've broadened everyone's minds, uh, does anyone have anything else to add to 1998's Nick Fury, Agent of Shield? <laughs> not really. I mean, like I said, I, I think. With, with minimal tweaking and, you know, good special effects, it wouldn't have been that bad. It would actually probably worked, but that's just so, not what we got. I need to say, I need to make a statement, if I may. Uh, Please do. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge, as you, as longtime LOD and new Real Heroes uh, listeners might not know, but LOD listeners would know, I, like our good friend Sean Pryor and some others, I'm a huge fan of bad movies. I really enjoy really terrible bad movies for for what they are for bad movies for you know just for for sheer enjoyment um of something that has gone horribly wrong uh i feel qualified in making the statement that this is indeed a bad movie thank you duly noted sir so let's let's give our our uh our out of 10 ratings mr from jersey what what would you give out of 10 nick fury agent of shield out of 10 i think i'd give it a four Definitely not a good movie, but one I did legitimately enjoy a lot of. Senor Dietz? I will give it a three. I don't think I need to back that up with anything else other than what I've already said. Science is on your side. 
I also, I will follow Mr. Dietz's lead and I will give this a three as well. Uh, I, I think, again, I kind of fall into, into Jordan's camp. I think conceptually there's, a, there's some good stuff here. I think if they would have just thrown out the script or um, given it to somebody a lot more capable, uh, this could have been a better movie. I like think if they would have, yeah, I think if they would have rolled the dice on this one and made it a theatrical release and given it the budget it needed, uh, you know, put the script on it that needed, maybe changed up the acting a little bit and, and tweaked a few things. I think this could have been a, a pretty decent flick. In other words, they made a totally different movie. <laughs> exactly, sir. <laughs> yes. But yeah, but but like Jordan said, I, th- I think there's some concepts here that are that are pretty good. And I think the the overall um, you know, plot and story of the movie really weren't that bad. I think it's just all of those other things combined. So, so I, I give it, I give it a three as well. So not, not a complete and utter waste of time, um, but, but fairly close to it. I was going to say, I would love to see this as a mystery science theater or riff tracks. Oh yes. uh, I think yeah, yeah, be, yeah. It would be glorious as that. So I think that leaves us with one question. What does the wheel of fate have for us next? Batman and Robin. Oh, yes. <laughs> I see you. Oh, no. So fate... Can we spin it is, again? <laughs> fate is a cruel mistress. Oh, no. She has spoken. The darkest, deepest depths of Joel Schumacher. No, no. Two in a row. Two in a row. Oh, the man. days of David S. Goyer. I cannot wait to pull quotes together for this episode. <laughs> I it actually be, have some you can borrow. <laughs> it will be magical. So next we will discuss Batman and Robin, which I think will be fantastic because I don't I honestly don't think I've seen this since I saw it in the theater with myself and my two children and my brother. So um it it, it will be fun. And will be perfectly timed for Thanksgiving. Because it is a turkey for sure. <laughs> Indeed. So I guess that about wraps it up for this episode of The Real Heroes. You could check out this and other episodes, as well as many of the other podcasts we do, at hhwlod.com. Uh, if you want to leave us a voicemail or give us some other comments, um, you could call 516-468-7912. So until next month, when we discuss the Joel Schumacher masterpiece, Batman no! and Robin. <laughs> We'll have to talk Jim off the ledge. But until then, have a good one, everybody. Yeah, well, my God's got a hammer.